Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. So good to see you here on the Bill Press Pod. Well, my, how times have changed for the worst. Not so long ago when we heard talk of dangerous right-wing extremist groups. It was all about members of small militia enclaves up in the mountains of Idaho that none of us would probably ever encounter. But no longer, not after Donald Trump has brought them into the mainstream. In Charlottesville, he praised right-wing extremists as very fine people. In response to the Black Lives Matter protest last summer, Trump encouraged groups like the Proud Boys to stage their own riots in Detroit and Portland and other cities. And on January 6th, he summoned a mob of armed and dangerous extremists to Washington to invade the U.S. Capitol and put the lives of the vice president and every member of Congress at risk. In the age of Donald Trump, right-wing extremists are no longer rare and remote. They are many, they are dangerous, and they are everywhere. In fact, just this week, the Southern Poverty Law Center identified 838 active hate groups that they are tracking across the United States. To learn more about the danger they pose to all of us, we hooked up with Michael Edison Hayden, the center's senior investigative reporter and spokesperson. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the uh, Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you. I have to tell you to open that ever since I've been in journalism, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been the one organization that we all depend on for your tracking of uh, extremist organizations around the country. My impression is that there are more of them than ever before. Am I right? Uh, If so, How many are you tracking and where are they? We are publishing this week our updated year in hate map. And there's actually um, slight decreases in the total number of hate groups. But I don't think that that should really serve as cause for celebration, especially given the environment that we're in now and what we saw on January 6th. It's complicated. If you look at what happened on January 6th, there were anti-government groups like the Oath Keepers there and Nick Fuentes's America First Coalition, which is a white nationalist group. But what we saw in Charlottesville back in 2017, where there was all these guys with specific uniform shields and things like that, it was slightly different. There was a huge mix of people who had just been radicalized online, individually, alone, uh, at their computers, mixed in with all these uh, traditional kind of anti-government groups and white nationalist groups. And that kind of stew is what we're kind of facing right now as a country. The last time I looked at your website, it was 2019. You had said you were following 940 uh, hate groups. So what you're telling us is that there are fewer of those now. But I I always thought of these as like 
militias up in the foothills of Idaho. Looking at your map, that's not the case. They're all over the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. Part of the evolution of the Southern Poverty Law Center has been uh, to begin looking at hate groups, extremist groups, far-right groups. This is not something that is relegated to people who want to perpetuate the Confederacy only, you know, down South. This is something, you know, starting in Trump's run in 2015, we saw this uh, huge flare of extremist activity, neo-Nazi activity in the Rust Belt. And some of the most prominent far-right extremists of that Trump era were people from the North and the Northeast. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Andrew Anglin, who is the editor of The Daily Stormer, who is from Columbus, Ohio, and Michael Penovich, who started this podcast network uh, called The Right Stuff that branched out into a number of different, I guess you would call them cells or uh, little chapters across the country, and is he's now founded a self-described political party called National Justice Party. I don't know if this is, you can qualify this as politics. It's just explicit desire to turn the country into a fascist state. But Penovich lived in New York City at times mm. and, and was from New Jersey. And the degree to which it has been weaponized and the algorithms, particularly the algorithms of social media companies, have been weaponized to radicalize people who you might stereotypically think are not part of this type of behavior. Do you have um, a list of uh, criteria that a group has to meet for you to identify them as a, as a hate group? I mean, there is a line, right, between just being like a bunch of kooks, right, who have some crazy ideas to yeah. a group that has a specific agenda? Well, well, the well, first thing I would say is I would urge you to, to you know, search, uh, do a search for us and look for just the criteria of hate group and read the formal definition. I'm going to give you a casual uh, definition okay. here. And the casual definition is these are people who assemble, you know, in an adversarial way against people's immutable characteristics. By that, we mean just things that just they cannot change, how they were born. People who are born in another country and, and came to this country, for example, uh, people who are born with a particular sexual preference, people who are uh, born black into Jewish families, etc. These immutable characteristics, the targeting of that is what we typically use to define um, a hate group, this, uh, the opposition to it. I would note that you know, there are all kinds of conversations happening um, among those who research far-right extremists about this kind of new wave of, um, I guess, hate, you would call it, um, that we're seeing in the country that is really about uh, anti-democratic activism, uh, hard-right, authoritarian, anti-democratic activism. And, and, and these are type of people who may allow for people of color to be in their group or may align themselves uh, with Jewish people, for example, often in the service of promoting authoritarian, anti-democratic regimes that, of course, disproportionately impact uh, people of color in, in places like America because, um, you know, who hoards the power, who is not allowed to vote, et cetera. And these, you know, this, this phenomenon is a particularly like a real post-Trump issue. And it is, you know, something we're talking about a lot when we're, when we're kind of figuring out how to define uh, academically what is happening. What are the groups, which are the, of the groups are you most concerned about today uh, in this post-Trump age 
uh, and in the age uh, and in the wake of January 6th? So I'll give you uh, I'll give you two answers there. Broadly speaking, the surge in anti-government uh, activism in the aftermath of Trump's uh, electoral defeat. That is a very, very huge matter that we're, that we're concerned about now. It's beginning to do a, a bleed over into the kind of white nationals and neo-Nazi groups that, or activists that um, admired Trump, at least in his early days. Uh, because now we're in a situation where the Democrats uh, superficially have um, power, at least. Uh, when I say superficially, I mean I, it's a certainly a tenuous hold uh, mm -hmm. right now on, in a very volatile political climate, as we, as we all know from watching the news. Um, but these neo-Nazi groups, I'm thinking of like Daily Stormer, for example, which is longstanding, have begin to, begun to also embrace the type of anti-government, anti-state rhetoric uh, more readily that um, we would traditionally associate with anti-government militias. And that is spreading. If you, if you remember, um, obviously, uh, Timothy McVeigh in the yeah. 1990s really, really strongly held anti-government beliefs, but also uh, admirer of the Turner Diaries, this kind of white supremacist fantasy book involving, you know, hanging uh, traitors and, and so forth, but with really strong racist and anti-Semitic overtones. That coming together of different kinds of far-right extremism is something that we're seeing a lot more of and something that I'm personally very concerned about. The second answer I was going to give you is, is merely the degree to which individual people, not in a group necessarily, but hooked onto encrypted, encrypted messaging apps and even on very public-facing, uh, prominent, highly-trafficked websites like Twitter are being radicalized over the internet. And that radicalization, I get a sense, is kind of growing in the aftermath of January 6th rather than slowing down. Let me ask you specifically about some of the groups that we saw, people wearing their members, their leaders, people wearing their slogans and their gear uh, on January 6th at the Capitol. Let's start with Proud Boys. How big are they? How dangerous are they? Well, I don't know if you saw this uh, story recently, but their um, you know, de facto leader for going back for the last two years, Enrique Tarrio, was recently found to have been collaborating uh, with, with the FBI for a while. So I don't know how that's going to impact the Proud Boys going forward. <laughs> it's a little bit reminded me of the Sopranos, uh, so to speak. I mean, I, I wonder what the level of trust is going to be in that group uh, going forward. But, you know, not to dismiss them because the Proud Boys have been extraordinarily resilient. You know, there have been times their founder, Gavin McGinnis, who is uh, Canadian, uh, born Canadian, has, has tried to distance himself at several times from the Proud, from the Proud Boys because of the, the degree to which they've been inflicting violence around the country at, at all these different events, taking you know these sort of street-level brawls that have happened in New York and Portland and all these places. So Proud Boys, taking out this apparent FBI informant story, have chapters all across the country and have been extraordinarily adept at recruiting people from buckets where they're, they may have white supremacist views, but they also may be people of color. Uh, and the kind of thing that brings them together is, again, what I mentioned before, this kind of anti-democratic, hard right. I mean, they would argue that they're pro-democracy. They're really trying to defend democracy, right? They love Trump during the height of the, of the Trump era. And these hard right, authoritarian, neo-fascist uh, image of this organized street group uniformed, going out there and fighting anti-Trump protesters, was I think really, really shocking. 
and they had a huge, obviously, boost in recruitment in the aftermath of Trump name-checking them at a debate, if you recall. Right. I, the, I believe it was towards the end of September. So I don't know what the informant story will do to impact them, but they've been extraordinarily resilient. And they really do feel like a very 21st century uh, hate group in the sense that they, they have members who have been white nationalists or connected to the white supremacist movement, uh, but they also welcome in you know, people of color. And Tario uh, was that. How about the Oath Keepers? So the Oath Keepers, you know, our anti-government desk would be better at, 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 at getting really deep in, in, into the Oath Keepers. But the Oath Keepers are one of the prominent anti-government uh, extremist groups in the country. And I think what is so uh, unnerving to people about the Oath Keepers is their ability to kind of assess a sort of first responders in situations like we saw on January 6th, their, their level of coordination their interest in recruiting military personnel. You know, they had a very pro-Trump bent and, you know, apparently loaned out kind of as a, in a security manner, you know, people like Roger Stone, also the Proud Boys, Roger Stone, people who are connected to Trump. A lot of the groups that you saw on January 6th, for example, I think really have this kind of connection to the world of Republican politics where they just have like one or two toes in there in that they have people like Roger Stone, who was a you know, phone call away from the president at the time, as far as everybody knows, uh, even when he was let go as an advisor. And, and you know, Stone has appeared in places with you know, surrounded by Oath Keepers and surrounded apparently and surrounded mm-hmm. by Proud Boys as well. So, you know, these are these kind of really, really pro-Trump groups. And we anticipate the Oath Keepers to take a more traditional anti-government view without Trumping around. And are the three percenters in that same category? Yes. uh, Militia um, group, very, very focused on kind of constitutional, defending their idea of the Constitution. One thing I like to talk about with people who don't really understand, how do you look at people who put the idea of patriotism and, and a patriot first. And what I would say is that these anti-government groups, which are like very, uh, you know, superficially pro-American and things like that, have definitions of patriotism that, you know, like the three percenters and things like that, that you have to meet an extreme definition of patriotism, an extremist definition of patriotism in order to satisfy uh, their vision. So they're, they're really defending this sort of the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, and things like that in the Constitution are so extreme, only few people can uh, meet it. And then and those who don't can be regarded as like enemies of the state. The philosophy uh, professor from Yale, Jason Stanley, who's written a lot about fascism and, and, and how whether, you know, Trump was a fascist and things like that, he's received a lot of criticism. I think he's been, a lot of his writing has been validated um, by recent events. But Jason Stanley talks about um, this friend-enemy distinction in fascist propaganda that really bleeds over into these anti-government groups who don't have to be explicitly pro-fascist to have them. And by that means that either you're with the leader or you are an enemy. This is um, really, really uh, eerily common among pro-Trump supporters, pro-Trump world these days. I think of former speechwriter for uh, the White House, Darren, Darren Beatty, who will tweet about American citizens being the enemy, we are our enemy within, our, our, our enemy at home. And as just as a point of comparison, we who report on these far-right groups for Southern Poverty Law Center, when we have internal conversations, we're not like, oh, these people are enemies or something like that. We are doing research, academic assessments of, of these groups of what they believe. 
These type of conversations are very specific to hardline extremist ideas. These, these ideas that you're either with the leader or against. Pretty scary stuff, actually. Right. So what uh, role has Donald Trump played in the emergence, the growth, the power, the presence of these extremist organizations? It's a really good question. And I think it's one that historians will be better able to answer at some juncture. But what, but what have you we, seen? Yes. But what we know for sure is that there's a huge increase in hate group activity and in far-right extremist recruitment from the minute that Trump came down that escalator in the in spring summer of 2015. Part of that is because Trump was giving voice to the same type of things that extremist groups were talking about. The type of rhetoric he was using about immigrants, the dehumanizing rhetoric that he was using about immigrants, the type of rhetoric he was using about Muslims that echoed so much of the anti-Muslim ext extremist groups, his willingness to bring in people like Stephen Miller, who had ties to VDARE, which is a white nationalist group, Sebastian Gorka, who had connections to Act for America, which is an anti-Muslim hate group. We won't know the full impact of that, but it is extraordinarily substantial. And every day we have more evidence of the degree to which his rhetoric helped radicalize tons and tons and tons of people. But it's not just Trump. It's also the algorithms on Twitter uh, and, and the degree to which Trump was given this massive platform and allowed to speak for a very long time, time on television, just dehumanizing people and so forth. He was the president who won in a very slim margin only in the Electoral College. But you look at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. She is, you know, the congresswoman from yeah. Georgia, she, you know, a QAnon believer and stuff like that. This is a post-Trump extreme figure uh, in our politics. And when I say that, if you look at somebody like Steve King, for example, who had these white nationalist police congressmen from uh, Iowa for many years, King kept trying to deny that he was a white nationalist and was sort of trying to work within Republican politics and be a normal kind of figure and denying these things and sort of teasing it out and going, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a sort of different animal altogether. This is a different variety. She says extreme things outright. Uh, she promotes extreme beliefs. She's willing to defend extreme beliefs. And there are very few people in the Republican Party due to the degree to which Trump's, Trump has helped radicalize that base of support who are willing to disavow uh, Green. They were all present in some form, different numbers of, of, of members, but all of their regalia was seen and, and their signs and slogans, uh, again, on January 6th. Did they organize together ahead of time to storm the Capitol, to take over the Capitol, to basically shut down the United States Congress? We don't have enough time to talk about all this because because we could do about six hours on this. But in the immediate aftermath of Trump losing that election, and 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 I knew it, I, I could tell in his voice when he addressed the people at like I, I don't remember it was like two or three in the morning East Coast time that day. I could see in Trump's face the news he was getting was not good. From that moment, his social media supporters prominent social media supporters who are operatives with ties to the Republican Party, people like this man, Ali Alexander, originally Ali Akbar, who is tied to the Proud Boys, uh, you know, has a, a strong relationship with Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the Proud Boys. Ali Alexander started to push this Roger Stone hashtag called Stop the Steal, 
and push it very aggressively on social media, along with other social media influencers who are connected to uh, the Trump world. I'm thinking of people like Jack Pozobic of One American News. Sometimes we, you know, mainstream media laughs at these people, wants to ignore them. They treat, treat them as kind of fatuous and things like that. So a lot of people did not take this seriously. And Alexander started to promote a series of events. Uh, the first, uh, you know, really major one, I believe, was November 14th. I think it was a Saturday right. mm -hmm. in, uh, in Washington, D.C. But there were a few other ones. There were a few other ones that would pop up. Mike Cernovich, who was a social media influencer, came down from his home in California down to Maricopa County, for example, surrounded by anti-government people with um, who were armed, I believe. These Alex Alexander uh, Stop the Steal events had overt out there, white nationalists. Nick Fuentes is one of them, a young white nationalist who has a big following. I believe I mentioned him earlier. And other extremist groups, including the Proud Boys. And Alexander, who is multiracial himself, in that sense, can provide a lot of cover for some of this extremism, started to make public statements about, we are not disavowing anyone in this movement. We're not disavowing anyone. Trump's margin for victory before, long before that election, seemed just potential margin for victory seems so slim, if you recall. And I got the sense that there's just this unwillingness to disavow because they just needed every inch. If you remember mm -hmm. that stand back and stand by comment with the proud. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what we published a, a long investigation on Stephen Miller's emails in, in 2019. That was one of the first times someone associated with the Trump movement got outed in connection with white nationalism and they did not make a comment. They didn't touch anything related to Stephen Miller. I got the sense that they were. Um, really closing the hatches here and not disavowing anyone. And Alex, Ali Alexander inherited this stop to steal, this post-Trump loss movement that they wanted to turn into a kind of coup. Uh, and he just said outright, we're not disavowing anyone. And that really resonated for me in November because I said, my God, if, he, if, they, if this is just an abandoned house now and they've ripped out all the wiring and they're just letting everybody in, all those soft barriers that had existed for a long time, even during the Trump era, this is underrated, it really did happen, between ex violent far-right extremists and mainstream Republican Party politics, the type of people who are go to those grassroots type events, those you might associate with photographs of the Tea Party back in the day, that if there are no safeguards, if there are no walls between this, this could get very, very dangerous. And what happened was for two months, we saw that, and then that culminated, hit a crescendo on the morning uh, the, or the afternoon, really, of January 6th. One of the things that uh, several people have commented on is, and we've seen troublesome, uh, certainly, that's probably too mild a word, a number of people in these movements from law enforcement with a law enforcement background or a military background or still members of law enforcement departments or the military. What do you make of that? I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. Well, the first thing I'll just speak as a, you know, as an American, I feel, I feel sad. It's extra, extraordinarily discouraging. So let's just start with that just as a human being. I don't think anything I think has bothered me more uh, than that. And it's something we tr we've tracked very closely at the center for a while. And what I make of it is for a very long time, far-right extremists have valued military members as recruitments above almost anything else and law enforcement. Why? And 
the reason why is the same thing I mentioned with the Oath Keepers about sizing up first responders to situations like this, um, being able to advise people on the ground in, in, in a chaotic situation like that, being able to make intelligence assessments, then secondarily also, uh, you know, understanding of weaponry and things like that. If you are preparing for sort of civil war apocalyptic situations, you need people who have that type of background, that type of experience. And I think the end result of that is we have, for years in this country, uh, seen eroding trust in our overseas actions and eroding trust in our law enforcement from, from many people in the public and sometimes for very, very understandable reasons. And seeing people who are out there, either white supremacists or you know, doing this type of organized violence with white supremacists is, is guaranteed to further erode that trust. And again, once again, for reasons that I think are pretty clearly understandable. And what we, I think we need to do is, we are late to the party here, is begin looking at this in a much more serious way. Uh, the center talks about for the military, for example, I say, oh, what are you going to do when you find out somebody is a neo-Nazi with Adam Waffen division? What do you do? You just cut them loose? From the Marines, well, then you cut, you know, or he's interested in that. Well, then they, the likelihood of going directly to a hate group is that much more strong. So we need to be able to get people help while they're still in the military, right? Mm, there has right. to be people who have to be able to have the intelligence to be able to to um, identify symbols, tattoos, and things like that, and see warning signs or events, and get people help. I have talked to many formers who've come to me as sources later in life, and their lives have been utterly destroyed by this stuff. Uh, you know, people who have had the courage to get out, uh, just totally destroyed, families destroyed, future incomes destroyed, things like that, and, and under tremendous amount of strain. When you couple that with things like law enforcement and military, I feel like the after effect on them, not to mention the public, which we just discussed, is just that much worse. It's a, it's a really, uh, a, just a sad thing for the country. I, I hope we, hope we do better. <laughs> uh, on that point, let's take a quick break, and we've got uh, lots more to get to here. Our guest, uh, Michael Edison Hayden, is with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, he is the senior investigative reporter and spokesperson for the Southern Poverty Law Center. This is the Bill Press Pod. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Today's podcast about those extremist groups that are proliferating across the United States, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Under the leadership of President Mark Perrone, 1.3 million members of the UFCW. They're the ones who work in our great retail chain stores, our grocery stores, our chemical plants, cannabis plants, and the meat and poultry processing plants. We thank them for their great work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app. Or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with Michael Edison Hayden, senior investigative reporter and spokesperson for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, so, Michael, one of the groups has gotten uh, the most attention uh, we haven't even talked about yet. Uh, they seem to be in a category of their own. What's the story with QAnon? I mean, what are they as weird as it seems? What do they really believe and how big are they? How dangerous are they? So I guess the first question is, are they a group? Uh, you know, I think is the, is 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 the question. It's it's sort of like you have to rethink everything, sort of philosophically, kind of about when you see QAnon, because just the the degree to which the conspiracy theory is pervasive, it's extraordinarily dangerous. And I, I know that there has been there have been a lot of stories recently about the degree to which QAnon supporters, and we can get into what they believe in a second, mm-hmm. have become uh, uh, are reckoning with. The fact that many of the predictions, the sort of doomsday cult type predictions or reverse doomsday cult, actually, it's about, uh, you know, Trump wins and everything happens, um, you know, that that the clock on that has uh, expired and now they're reckoning with it or whatever. I have 100 percent confidence that if QAnon does sort of, as we know it, um, disappear, it will reform as something else that is extremely pervasive. There have been studies that suggest that that half of the Republican people who vote Republican have some sort of idea from the QAnon conspiracy theory they believe in. I mean, that that's that's just wow. It's incredibly dangerous. It is the cause of kind of the intellectual rot of conservative journalism and the conservative media for so long. Uh, again, it's a very tragic situation. Uh, they have just allowed uh, you know, social media to kind of overtake any kind of standards or uh, practices that they had in the past. Do they really believe that the Democratic Party is run by a bunch of pedophiles? Yes. <laughs> Jesus, based on what? There is some debate about this from people who have researched QAnon. I am. A, I'm going to tell you my version of it. At the close of the 2016 election, many pro-Trump activists online pushed this conspiracy called Pizzagate. Yeah. Right? A most prominent of which is a far-right extremist named Jack Pozobic. Another one is Michael Cernovich, 
both of them involved in different ways in the Stop the Steal movement, by the way, both of them in different ways connected to Roger Stone. Pizzagate uh, posited based upon, it was, it was a way to kind of make something of, uh, of not much from John Podesta's uh, hacked emails that were published by WikiLeaks and circulated heavily on Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, it sort of proposed this fantasy that Hillary Clinton and her allies and Democratic Party allies had uh, created a pedophilia dungeon in the basement of a, of a pizza place called Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C., a place that is haunted by this conspiracy theory now for five years. Just a week ago, they had people protesting outside at no pedophilia, whatever. I mean, just just incredibly sad what's happened to this business. In, in December of 2016, a guy comes up from North Carolina, I believe, and goes into the, the Comet Ping Pong with a gun. Right. And fires it in and fires it in there. And he's looking for this pedophilia dungeon that I think the cynical activists that promoted this lie always knew was not there. I th I suspect these are very cynical operatives, in my opinion. And that really derailed uh, Pizzagate as we knew it. And it's sort of kind of it didn't go away, but it needed that energy needed to go into something new. And this conspiracy theory called the storm is how it first was it was what it was first called but then later became better known as QAnon, started on 4chan and 8chan, uh, where this guy who was supposedly like talking from inside knowledge of the Trump administration, some believed he was Trump himself or whatever, was giving this secret uh, information about this storm that was coming that would be like lead to a series of arrests and prosecution of the people, the kind of cast of characters who serve as villains in the pro-Trump landscape. Hillary Clinton, Huma Abedin, one of her uh, mm -hmm. personal friends and advisors, people like that. Podesta, uh, Obama, of course, uh, these sort of coded dispatches to QAnon supporters became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it started to almost get completely out of control. There were people like Jack Pozobic, for instance, who I mentioned are associated with Pizzagate, who ran segments uh, on, on One American News of all places, uh, you know, obviously conspiracy associated with all kinds of right-wing conspiracy, trying to debunk it. So I really think that people were trying to control this thing. And they just was not getting controlled. <laughs> hmm. And its believers um, had really rabid beliefs about uh, Democratic officials being pedophiles, uh, Hillary Clinton wearing faces of... Uh, Severed faces of 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 people in in satanic rituals, um, just just stuff that you don't want to believe that people believe, but they did. And I think that people were really reluctant to catch on to just how pervasive this was. And it's of course we saw it present on, in, at the Capitol that day when right. people tried to uh, you know pull an insurrection. Okay, well, to, in, in terms of how far this has gone. Uh, now, we talked about members of the military or members of law enforcement. Now we have the New York Times uh, this morning, when we're talking this day, has identified four members of Congress, one of whom, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is a QAnon supporter, a member of Congress from Georgia, Paul Gozer from Arizona, who's a, appeared at Proud Boys events, Andy Biggs from Arizona, appeared at events with the Oath Keepers, Lauren Boebert from Colorado, appearing with the, the Three Percenters. I mean, these organizations now, they're not just influencing Congress, 
they're sitting in the United States Congress. Yes, they are. I mean, and, and like, I wish the Times had been a little bit earlier on this, in the sense that we have been trying to sound the alarm about some of these figures for a long time. But I mean, I guess it took an insurrection for um, everybody to take it uh, that seriously. We have been fighting to try to get people to pay attention to this for a long time. And I understand why there has been a bit of a delay in covering this stuff very seriously. I am sympathetic to it. Uh, it seems insane. And there are so many life and death issues that we all face right now. I mean, climate change that are not getting you know uh, enough attention. There's so much. And of course, the pandemic, my God, right? So I'm glad we're paying attention to this now. My concern is that now they've or they're already in the door, and it's 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 very late. Gosar has been saying unhinged things for a very long time. I don't know if you know this, but Gosar claimed that um, Charlottesville was kind of a false flag type operation that was staged yeah. by George Soros. I mean, this 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 type of stuff was not. I mean, I remember reporting on that before I came to SPLC. And, you know, the same type of people on Twitter and, and social media retweeted it and whatever, but it never really sunk in, I think, at a national level what that's like. And you have Paul Gosar with Steve Bannon in Europe having meetings with extreme far-right European parties. Uh, this is really serious. This is not conservatism. No. And by the way, you may be taking it seriously, and now maybe the New York Times is taking it seriously, but clearly the Republican leadership in Congress is not taking it seriously. Kevin McCarthy supports these people, supported them when they ran for office, and hasn't done anything about their extremist beliefs. Yeah, I, uh, I know. It's probably right below the military and police um, matter we talked about, and just in terms of things that I feel sad about. It's good that Southern Poverty Law Center is on their case. Is the Department of Justice on their case? Clearly, they crossed the line into illegal activity. In my judgment, they did at some of the state capitals, but they certainly did on January 6th at the United States Capitol. What's the Justice Department do? Just look the other way? I think that there has been a really delayed reaction in taking this stuff seriously, in part because, one, um, most of the people involved in this movement are white. Let's, we have to be serious about that. Thank you, and you're right. I mean, white, yeah. white supremacy is the common thread of all these organizations, isn't it? Yes. Second of all, the people involved in this uh, type of uh, radicalization, which I said is not so much in groups now, but also just in individuals and in uh, one of two political parties in this country. Uh, which, which is the two-political party system is also, um, I think, creating some problems in this respect. The fact that these people are in, you know, they're your, they're your uncle, they're your cousin, they're on your street, is also creating a huge delayed reaction in dealing with it. There's this deer in the headlights reaction where it just it can't be, it can't be real. It can't be my uncle. It can't be my cousin. It can't be my mother. In some cases, we've heard stories, right? So the first time I ever really saw the FBI taking far-right extremism extremely seriously during the Trump era was in the immediate aftermath, if you recall, there's so many things have happened um, across this time, but in the immediate aftermath of the August 3rd, I believe, August 3rd terror attack, August 3rd, 2019, uh, El Paso terror attack, in which a young man allegedly uh, came and killed about 
uh, two dozen people in an El Paso Walmart, really in the name of this anti-immigrant ideology, uh, this using the same type of talking points in his alleged manifesto that you see from these anti-immigrant nonprofits uh, that advise people, including the president at that time. And then there were a, a flurry of arrests of people who were plotting attacks in synagogues, hospitals, all kinds of different places in the immediate aftermath of that. And they did not get very much attention. Uh, but there were, I just remember it's just so many seeing like a new one every few weeks in the immediate aftermath of that, because I think there was a wake up call that like, you know, oh my God, these guys are really mobilizing and they're going to do terror attacks. With the QAnon stuff, a flurry of arrests, but also this kind of, okay, well, hopefully Trump will leave and, and, and then we'll get this sort of back to normal, I think was the attitude. It seems like uh, Department of Justice is now catching up to that. There have been uh, different charges recently, one of which um, was a very interesting one. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, a, a guy named Douglas Mackey, whose uh, stage name was Ricky Vaughn, who was recently charged for, for election charges related to election interference for doing a kind of, uh, and I mentioned this because it is related, to doing a kind of social media rigging operation where he was convincing people to vote, to, to waste away their vote. And basically 5,000 people ultimately did by you know texting in their vote based upon these false things that he was putting in his fake news. Um, it seems like the coalition of anti-democratic, and I'm just going to do this in a broad sense, anti-democratic, hard-right, pro-authoritarian movement that came around with Trump that unified both extreme accelerationist neo-Nazis and also just these hard-right Trump supporters, they are finally starting to mobilize and do something about it. And then now the question is, is it too late? Is it too dug into our politics? Um, we have to hold out hope that it is not. Let me ask you just a couple of final, real quick questions, real quick answers, if we can, okay? Yeah. Uh, number one, we've talked, of, we've been talking about extremist groups on the right. Are there an equal number of groups as as dangerous a number of groups on the left? No, and it's not it's not particularly close. Absolutely, without question, people in with a left wing anarchist ideology who are uh, connected to the so-called Antifa movement, uh, did violence uh, mm -hmm. during the Trump era. So that, that cannot be disputed. Uh, somebody uh, sucker punched Richard Spencer in the side of the head, for example, during J20. Uh, there's a famous incident where a guy cracked somebody in the head with a bike lock. And just constant weekend uh, scuffles between anarchists and uh, extreme far-right figures. But... The dialogue about Antifa has been presented by extreme far-right figures. One of them is Jack Pizobic, um, uh of One America News, for instance, who very early on in that process was promoting conspiracy theories and, and, and deliberate lies about, about Antifa, that they derailed a train, that they um, shot right. up, the, they did the Sutherland Springs mass shooting, one of many mass shootings we forgot. All these things were made up in order to inflate the threat of Antifa and create some idea of both sides do it in order to keep that Overton window, that's so to speak, that that um, world of far-right extremism moving hard, make that train moving to the hard far-right um, under the guise of both sides do it, both sides are a problem, uh, et cetera. There is, no, there is nothing comparable to the El Paso shooting uh, or, 
or the Tree of Life terror attack in Pittsburgh that has come out of the left uh, in recent years. It has to be established as a fact and not some kind of partisan issue. All right. Secondly, Trump is gone. He's no longer in power. Does that mean that all of these right-wing extremist groups then fold up their tent and go away, or, or just the opposite? I, what, I, what I think is, and I'm, I'm sort of predicting here, so I am not entirely certain that groups will be in great shape. The idea of groups will be in great shape uh, going forward um, under Biden as if law enforcement ramps up things and they start looking for different ways to prosecute these guys that they're going to be under whatever. What I am more concerned about is this rhetoric around the Second Amendment and the First Amendment, the amendments that so-called patriot, uh, constitutional, whatever, those are the ones they know. And those are the ones that they are unifying people Mm -hmm. around right now, mobilizing, uh, creating creating kind of uh, feelings of solidarity among different sectors of far-right extremists. That's what I'm more concerned about. Because what we saw on January 6th, again, was not like Charlottesville, where there was these uniform different groups with shields and things like that. There was a little bit of that. And then there were all the, also these kind of randos um, who were you know, in their like, T-shirts advertising a civil war, that strange Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt that everybody has been, been horrified by, understandably so. What I am concerned about is that this mob is kind of just a floating sea uh, in the country right now Mm -hmm. and can be unified under an uh, authoritarian, cynical, hard-right politician who is not Trump, who can just, at a whim, go back, dial into this, and, you know, say, like, uh, you know Mitt Romney, he's got to go. All these, you know, people on the Republican Party who are down say that they got to go. You go with me. And then we have this kind of unified uh, neo-fascist movement in the country. And that is, I think, in, in the coming years, the thing that, that scares me the most. And the final question, do you consider domestic terrorism today in this country as big a threat as foreign terrorism? A, a bigger threat. A bigger threat. A bigger threat. For all the reasons that we've talked about. A, a bigger threat. And, I, I, you know, I, I don't take... Um, I don't take you know things like groups like ISIS lightly either. I just want to make that very clear. They are always a threat and extraordinarily scary. But um, we we have to we have to wake up to what we're seeing around us. This is not normal. The Tree of Life terror attack, El Paso. This is not normal. What we saw in Charlottesville is not normal. I don't know how many wake up calls we really need. And what we saw on January 6th is not normal. Michael Edison Hayden, thank you so much, Michael. First of all, thank you and all your people, your friends at the Southern Poverty Law Center for the great work you've done over the years. And thank you in particular for your good work and for joining us today on the uh, Bill Press Pod. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, really nice conversation. And that's it for today's podcast on right-wing extremist groups. Now, this week, there's going to be a lot going on at the U.S. Capitol, for sure. All the debate over the new stimulus bill, $1.9 trillion that Joe Biden has asked for. All the debate over what to do about Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia. So there'll be a lot of fodder for our roundtable this Friday. Be sure to come back on the Bill Press Pod for Friday's roundtable. And in the meantime... Stay safe, stay strong, stay sane, if possible, in this in the days of the pandemic, and come back and see us here on the Bill Press Pod next time on Friday.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.